Unpacking Injustice with the Montana Innocence Project. This podcast tells the real stories behind wrongful and unjust convictions and illuminates the complex issues responsible for making our criminal justice system unjust. Today we are bringing you the story of Montana Innocence Project client Katie Garding, whose conviction for vehicular homicide was overturned in March. Let's begin unpacking. In the last episode, we detailed how Katie's wrongful conviction came to be, and we got to meet Katie and learn about the real person behind the wrongful conviction. In this episode, we will dive more into the innocence issues present in her case. As you recall, Katie's conviction almost solely relied on a false accusation by an incentivized witness. That witness was her ex-boyfriend, James Bordeaux. Katie first learned about the vehicular homicide and the false accusation against her when the state called her in for questioning. It was kind of random, and they were like, well, we just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about that night, Um, and they were asking me about um, some hit and run, and then that's when I had actually learned that there was somebody that was actually hit, like, killed on that night, because I had no idea prior to that, and it was about a year later, Um, and so they questioned me when I went, you know, went through all the questions, and they were like, well, would it surprise you to know that James said that you were the one that did this? And it kind of threw me off a little bit. And I was like, yeah, it would surprise me a lot. And he was like, well, that's why we're here today is because he's the one that came forward and said that you did that. And I just, I was like, kind of like dumbfounded. And I was like, well, I don't know why he would do that because we never really like had like a bad breakup or anything. Like he was just in jail and things kind of just ended. We weren't even together that long. So it's not like there was a lot of connection there, I guess. Like, looking back at it, I feel like it was a very selfish thing. And sometimes people just do what's best for them. And they don't think about the consequences that they're putting on other people. Um, And so, like, now I'm just like, well, he was just obviously just being a selfish asshole. Because he didn't want to sit more time in jail for a crime that he had committed. Um, And so, like, in a in a weird, like, twisted sense, I kind of understand. Because, you know what I mean? It's just kind of sometimes that's what people do is where they only think about themselves and maybe at the time like he didn't really think that it was actually going to go anywhere but he was getting a deal for regardless incentivized witnesses also known as false informant testimony or jailhouse snitches play a role in more than 20 percent of wrongful convictions it's somebody who gets who gets a benefit for testifying against somebody else that was montana innocence project legal director katie carpenter We asked her if you are allowed to tell juries that witnesses are incentivized. If the other side, in this case the state, didn't move to exclude and the court didn't order that there be an exclusion or kind of like an order saying you don't get to cover that, then you ram that as much as possible in that case. But I think it would be naive to say that defense counsel always has that information. A lot of times they don't. Um, as far as figuring out like whether this person is incentivized you might have an inkling there's been multiple cases where I've looked at it and I'm like why does it seem that gravity is going the opposite way in this case with this incentivized witness why does it everything point towards this person and it just takes a u-turn and you ask and you ask and you ask is this person a confidential informant is this person like all of this stuff and you get nothing and so um 
that's just a practical aspect that like, yeah, if you've got the evidence, you present that in spades to the jury. But that presumes that you have the evidence. Luckily, in Katie's case, defense counsel did have the evidence to prove James was incentivized, reducing his sentence from a possible 100 years in prison to no time served in exchange for his testimony against Katie. Not only did Katie's attorney make sure the jury knew James was incentivized, but she also demonstrated how his testimony was at odds with the state's own facts. Katie's trial counsel did a great job of cross-examining James Bordeaux uh, as far as, you know, she went over the fact that he says that they rolled over something when in fact the state's theory was that the victim was actually propelled over the, the hood of the car. Um, there's another witness in the car that said this never happened. And that witness actually has a real good reason why he wouldn't want to be, uh, you know, helpful to Katie um, or helpful to this guy. Like he, there's no bias towards helping someone here. He's just objectively saying, I was in the car. We never hit anything. That witness was Paul, the guy Katie and James met at Red's Bar on New Year's Eve. James stole Paul's gun, and Katie pleaded guilty as an accessory to that crime. Considering this, Paul had absolutely no incentive to help Katie, yet he told the jury the truth anyways. Despite Katie's attorney poking holes in James's testimony, and despite Paul's counter-testimony, the jury believed James. Too often, in wrongful conviction cases, we see that it has little to do with the facts and more to do with which witness looks more believable. Well, and if you think about it, it's just like you're pulling people off the streets that don't know anything about law um, and you're asking them to listen to all of this stuff. Like they're not going to hear like the evidence. They're not going to hear that. They're going to hear what people say instead of like looking at all of like the different facts that actually go into like the charging um, of the case or the the proof that you didn't do something or you did do something. Um, they listen to the witnesses and that that's what they believe instead of like actually the facts, because really um, you shouldn't really need witnesses like that in a case if the facts were like lined up perfectly. Like they'd be like, yep, this is this is what happened and this is what shows that. And that's why she's being charged with this. Instead, they have to bring in 20 different people. And then it just gets confusing after that, because I know that I was confused in the chart and I was the one on trial and I didn't even know what was going on. So um, I couldn't imagine like what a jury was thinking. So I think like, you know, that part is like, yeah, they're going to believe they're going to pick who, who is more believable and go off of that instead of like what's actually real. Katie's story was featured on a 2018 TV show called The Final Appeal, hosted by exoneree Brian Banks and former L.A. prosecutor Lonnie Coombs. They interviewed two of the jurors and asked them why they thought I was guilty. And they said it was because of the way I looked and the way I was acting, because I kind of looked like I was like snarky. And I'm like, and I was like super young, like, and I'm like, how are you supposed to act? Even if like I had acted differently, I still think that I would have been in the wrong because they were still looking at me as being guilty. Like it would have mattered what I had done or how I had, had acted like in their minds, like I had committed a crime. James has never acknowledged that he falsely accused Katie, but shortly after she was paroled, his sister messaged on Facebook. His sister Heather reached out to me. Um, and apologized for what he did and then pretty much told me that she knew that he was lying and that he shouldn't do that because I was a good person and didn't deserve that and um, but he never has um, it was kind of shitty that like she stood behind beside him anyways and then like years later you're like oh I knew it was wrong but you know it's my brother so 
Um, so I don't know. It was kind of like mixed emotions. Like I don't hold any hard feelings because I can't just for my own mental health, but it just, it's, I guess it's hard to do the right thing in the moment sometimes. We asked Katie if she knew about incentivized witnesses before her wrongful conviction. No, not really. Um, and if I had, um, I probably didn't believe that it was actually like a thing. Um, it's, it's hard to say like if I did or not now, because it's been like, I obviously know all about it, but, um, I guess I didn't really think about it before. Today, 13 years after her wrongful conviction, Katie just wants people to believe that incentivized witnesses are real. I think it just should be like a truth that everybody knows that the state does this, um, that they have to bribe people to lie about other people so that they can get convictions. Cause that's what, what's important to them as opposed to, um, actually finding the person that did it. While James's incentivized testimony led to Katie's wrongful conviction, it was not the evidence used to overturn it. We succeeded on an ineffective assistance of counsel argument by showing that defense counsel's failure to consult an accident reconstruction expert prejudiced Katie's chances of being found innocent at trial. All right, so ineffective assistance of counsel is basically just saying that your constitutional right to counsel uh, was violated that like you didn't receive what the constitution gives you a right to so it's not enough that you just have somebody sitting next to you when you're um facing criminal charges they actually have to be competent in what they do so first you've got to show that counsel's performance was deficient and that that deficiency the second part is that that deficiency prejudiced the defense Um, the performance prong is met if it fell if defense counsel's performance fell below an objective standard of reasonableness, um, which is defined as um, reasonable is defined as what is within the range of competence demanded of attorneys in criminal cases. And then prejudice um, is shown when you can show that, that there's a reasonable probability that but for counsel's deficient performance or unprofessional errors, Um, the result of the proceeding would have been different. In Katie's case, her trial attorney was effective in many ways, except for the one way that mattered most, challenging the physical evidence. So if the mechanism of the crime is that you were driving a car and it resulted in the death of another um, because of a crash, that is central to your case. And you're not going to be able to access that information just, you know, because you're a fabulous attorney. This is difficult. Um, This is uh, physics. This is, um, you know, we did computer reconstruction with experts. Um, This is stuff that is very much beyond what what an average person would understand. So when Katie's case, especially, and it was especially problematic in Katie's case because Katie had so little damage to her vehicle. And the fact that her counsel didn't look into that didn't have somebody who was capable of making sense of why that could be or why it couldn't be is the basis of the ineffectiveness. When the Montana Innocence Project began investigating Katie's case, the first step was an accident reconstruction. The results show that the state's theory that Katie's car struck and killed the victim violates the laws of physics. We use the state's the state's theory of the case, right? And we brought it to um to accident reconstruction to CARCO was the was the group we actually our investigator at the time Spencer Basie actually obtained Katie's uh, car um, 
it had been repossessed since then. And so he went to the, the repo lot, bought it, uh, hauled it out to California to Carco. And they got this car and said, okay, I see that it has, um, you know, this kind of aftermarket bumper, the, the square bumper. And they found um, another um, Chevy Blazer from the same time period made a replica of that bumper and then took every part of the state's case, you know, the victim's height, the victim's weight, um, the the way that the, that the state said Katie's car would have had to swerve. Um, and they, they did thousands of computer reconstruction uh, tests. So they did computer simulations and showed that that's physically impossible, but that wasn't enough. They actually put together um, a physical representation of that, which you can see in our, there's a video of it where they actually have this car that's just like Katie's car driving along, just like the state said, with the victim, just the way the state said it happened and the witnesses said it happened. And the, the damage to the car was astronomical. Um, you know, the, the windshield was busted, I mean, just completely shattered. The, um, the hood of the car was, was dented. Um, it supported exactly what the computer simulation said is that there's no possible way that Katie's car, applying the laws of physics in the known world, that we, the world of science, there's no possible way that Katie's car could have been the one that struck and killed Mr. Parsons. Katie first realized the extent of her ineffective assistance of counsel when Spencer Vasey, a beloved investigator who has since passed away, informed her that accident reconstruction testing was underway. He let me know that they were doing um, an accidental reconstruction down in California and that it should have been done during my trial because it clearly shows that my vehicle was not the striking vehicle. And then like at that point, I was like, I kind of thought to myself, like, why wasn't that done before? Like, why didn't we think about that? Like, why? Because when there's no, um, when there's no like evidence, like you have to go by, you have to go by like the, the mathematical facts, like, which I learned afterwards. And like, that's what you have to go by because there's no real eyewitness. There's no DNA, there's nothing else. So then you have to go through and go and take all the little, the little pieces of the crime scene and put those together and then create a, a, obviously a reconstruction of what happened that night and that never happened and that's kind of when I realized that that was like that should have been done 10 years ago. A few months later Katie got to see the video of the live reconstruction with her own eyes. I don't know it was kind of like yeah it was mind-blowing I was like that's insane like if, the, if like we would have had that because there's nothing to compare to at my trial so that was the unfortunate part. And I think if other people would have seen that, they would have been like, there's no way it was this car. Um, I had an old crack in my windshield from like a rock chip from like, I think before I even bought it, but um, it looked nothing. If you compared the two, you'd be like, this one was obviously in an accident and this one was not. A reality for many wrongfully convicted people is that finally having the evidence to get them out of prison can bring up complicated feelings. It means there is finally a way out of the nightmare of wrongful incarceration but at the same time, it is a reminder that they never should have been there in the first place. It was kind of like a letdown because we were so focused on something else, you know, and I thought it was the right thing at the time, too, because I didn't know that this was something that needed to be done. 
Um, so I was just like, with me, like, cause that's not my job. So, you know, obviously like you're supposed to be the professional and know like those kind of things and like what's important when you're in a trial and when you don't have any DNA evidence, um, like that should, should have been like the only thing that she focused on and it was the exact opposite. So it's kind of like a letdown a little bit. Cause I believe that we were doing the right thing. Even talented, well-intended attorneys like Katie's are ineffective sometimes. This is often attributed to chronically underfunded public defender systems, with overworked attorneys sometimes balancing over 100 cases at one time. They're busy, they, uh, you know, have limited resources. And then there's the other part that, like, is kind of a subset of that, I think, that's a little bit more granular. Um, it takes work to, know, to be able to identify what experts you need. So it's not just that, like, I mean, some experts are a little bit more, I guess, like, accessible or like, you can understand why you might need, for instance, a medical expert in a shaken baby syndrome case, because it's all a medical based kind of uh, case. But in this case, you know, and I think that it just may be harder to understand what sort of experts you actually need. And if you're already busy and you've got other cases going on, it's, um, you know, it takes time to understand your case. It takes time to understand the weaknesses of your case. Um, oftentimes, you know, public defenders are working, they are in an office with other public defenders, but they are taking on so many cases that while you would think like, oh, they're in a law firm that they can kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Yes. And if all the other people in the office are also just as busy as you are, you recognize that time is not eternal um, and bouncing ideas off of each other might not be as obvious as others. You also make an estimate of, you know, and a str strategy around how to use your time at trial. Um, so, uh, Sometimes people get that wrong, that estimate wrong. Um, we are all human beings, and that's part of it, too, is that just ineffective assistance of counsel, um, you know, in in my opinion, in reviewing these uh, applications for, for representation with the Montana Innocence Project, is not at all uncommon. Um, and we need to normalize that, that, like, we as attorneys are not infallible. We can't make these determinations and then forever... Um, eternal stand by them and say, oh yeah, what I did at trial should stand forever because ultimately the downside of that is that um, somebody got wrongfully convicted because, I, because we messed up. Admirably, Katie's trial attorney has assisted in our legal battles to exonerate Katie by providing affidavits, explaining how she was ineffective for failing to conduct an accident reconstruction, describing it as a terrible oversight. Ineffective assistance of counsel violates a defendant's Fifth Amendment right to due process and their Sixth Amendment right to effective counsel and a fair trial. Strickland v. Washington was a landmark Supreme Court case in 1984 that established the legal standard for determining whether a criminal defendant's right to counsel was violated by ineffective assistance of counsel. According to the Strickland test, to prove ineffective assistance of counsel, a defendant must show, one, that their trial lawyer's performance fell below an objective standard of reasonableness, and two, that there is a reasonable probability that, but for the counsel's unprofessional errors, the result of the proceeding would have been different. In the next episode, we will detail how the Montana Innocence Project used this legal test to overturn Katie's conviction. 
Unpacking Injustice is a Montana Innocence Project podcast. The artwork was created by Rob Truax, and the music was composed by Corey Fay. To learn more about the Montana Innocence Project, visit our website, mtinnocenceproject.org, or follow us on social media at Big Sky Innocence. To submit a case, visit our website and click on the Request Legal Assistance tab. Thank you for unpacking injustice with the Montana Innocence Project.